It's great to be with you this morning, um, and I pray for my voice. <clears throat> I must say that I've got a cold or an allergy or something, so I may be clearing my voice a lot, so I'm going to just get the water ready. Um, and I also have a PowerPoint that I put together for this, so I hope, I hope the message and the PowerPoint stay together. If they don't, just pay attention to one or the other. Um, <laughs> Um, there we go. So the historian of missions, Scottish uh, scholar and missiologist Andrew Walls, in his study of the history of the church, identified two principles of the gospel that impact culture and society. And I'm an anthropologist, so you know somewhere I had to bring in culture and society. So this is going to be about it. But um, these, I think, are two very important principles for us. And so the first one is called the indigenizing principle. And Wall states the, that this relates to the impossibility of separating an individual from his or her, her cultural relationships, and thus from his or her society. This leads to an in, one varying feature in, Christi, in Christian history, the desire to indigenize to live as a Christian and yet as a member of one's own society, to make the church a place to feel at home. And I call this really the cultural aspect of Christianity, of the gospel, in the sense that Christianity is translatable. And what Walls is saying is that in every society and in every culture, the gospel has to take root. It has to be something that people take as their own. It cannot be seen as a foreign entity. If it's seen as a foreign entity, it will always be limited in its impact on societies and cultures. It has to become rooted. People have to see it as their own, and church has to be a place that they feel at home. But the second principle is really important, I think, for us to understand, and that is uh, the Pilgrim Principle where he says, along with the indigenizing principle which makes his faith a place to feel at home, the Christian inherits the pilgrim principle which whispers to him that he has no abiding city and warns him that to be faithful to Christ will put him out of step with his society. Not only does God in Christ take people as they are, he takes them in order to transform them into what he wants them to be. And I love this section in here where he says that, that we have this idea that we are to be pilgrims and it, it whispers to us that we have no abiding city and it warns us that to be faithful to Christ is to be put out of step with our society. And this is what I call the countercultural aspect of the gospel. The gospel takes root in every society or needs to take root in every society and culture, but in every society and culture, it also needs to be countercultural. Christians need to look and look at our own societies, and as Walls says, we need to see where do we need to be out of step with our society. So I think this is really a key question that we have as the church, and that is. Uh, where do we need to be out of step with our society? It's not if we need to be, it's where do we need to be out of step? Where do we need to be countercultural? I'm going to talk about three. There are 
the hundreds probably that we could, we could list. But I'm going to talk about three, and then I'm going to focus on the third. So we can think about racism, if we think particularly about American society. You know, racism has, uh, especially overt racism, has raised its ugly head. And we need to be asking ourselves as a church, what does it mean to be out of step with our society when it comes to these things? How are we people who are in the, the business of racial reconciliation and the, the better understanding of race relations? Oh, I'm sorry, I think I'm supposed to be clicking. I told you this was going to be tough. Well, no, I still got, oh, no, I don't want to get to that guy yet. I'm coming up to him. He's, he's, he's an important guy. I don't know who he is, but he's an important guy. Um, then we also have the dehumanization uh, that takes place among uh, particularly the marginalized in our society, right? These people are dehumanized. They are demonized. They are scapegoats. And we need to be asking ourselves as the church, how are we out of step with our society when it comes to loving the most vulnerable people among us? And then the third area that I want to talk about, and this is, this is a fairly recent one, I think. Maybe it's been there longer than I, than I imagine. But it's the idea of exhibiting weakness. We live in a time today where might makes right, where to admit to a mistake or to apologize when we do is viewed as weakness. And this is today's unpardonable sin. How do we, as the church, be able to step with our society when it comes to admitting our weaknesses to one another? And this is what I want to really focus on today, as you could tell by the passage that was read. And that is, um, how do we deal with weakness? How do we confess this to one another? So I'm going to take my, my cue from Paul today. And this morning, I am going to boast in, really, I'm just going to talk about, but my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me and that hopefully it can serve, my example can serve as an, as an encouragement to others just as Paul's example has served as an encouragement to me. Um, for those of you who don't know me well, uh, you're probably sitting there and thinking, well, that's, that's curious, right? That's what this look is. It's a curious look, right? That's, that's curious. I, uh, what, what is this guy going to talk about, right? Uh, for those of you who know me well, <laughs> my guess is you're thinking, okay, let's sit back, let's buckle up, because this could be a bumpy ride, right? And um, so uh, let, me, let me start with my story. Um, so this, I was a 21-year-old. <laughs> you know, I, as I put this together, I thought, this is going to get a laugh. And <laughs> it's such a sad thing because it means that I once looked like this and then I look like this. You know what I mean? So it's that comparison. This is me around 21 years old. In fact, this is my passport picture. It's absolutely amazing. Any country in the world, let me into their, into their country. <laughs> um, and yes, that is my real hair. Uh, and uh, so I, I, uh, 
I was, I was with a mission organization. I had gone overseas. Uh, I was planning to spend a year on a team, or longer, on a team in Austria. And um, I remember we were having this conference in Belgium. And uh, I, we were out playing volleyball. And I came back in, and we were having a small group meeting. And, uh, and just as I sat in this room with these guys, uh, I had this overwhelming sense of panic overtake me. It was the first panic attack I ever had. And I, I didn't know what to do because I'd never experienced anything like this before. And so I, I, I got up and I just left the room. I didn't say anything to anybody there. I just got up and went out and I was looking for a friend of mine because I thought I need to tell somebody what is happening here because I have no idea what is happening here. The best way I could describe it was I felt claustrophobic, right? Some of you are claustrophobic, I assume, but in my head, right? Usually for claustrophobic, you can get out of the physical context and then you feel better. When it's in your head, it's much more difficult, right? And so I had this sense of panic and I, I ran and I, I looked for this friend of mine and, uh, and it, was, it, was, it was a scary experience because I really had no idea what was going on with me. This was in 1976. Um, nobody was, I hadn't heard anything about panic attacks at that time. I had no idea these things happened or what they were. And so I was really bewildered by this. <clears throat> these continued for the next couple of years. Uh, they would come, uh, or a year or so, and they would come, they would come periodically. But I could not figure out what, what the trigger was, right? What was it that was causing this to happen to me, you know? Because I'd be in situations where I would think, well, I, I, this isn't panicky, right? This isn't a panicky situation. And all of a sudden, panic would overcome me. And uh, I was working for a team that, uh, that, with this mission organization, was traveling behind the Iron Curtain. Now, granted, that, and we had taken Bibles and Christian literature to believers back at this time. So granted, this was a, it was a stressful job, right, to do. But probably the most stressful point of that uh, trip was the border crossing, right? Because at the border crossing, you never knew if they were going to find what you had hidden or if you were going to make it through, right? I never had a panic attack at the border crossing. And so I thought... Well, it's not really excessive stress, evidently, right, that's doing this. It's not what's causing these panic things to sort of come about. I could not figure out what that uh, trigger was. I finally got to the point where I could actually feel these coming on and like an hour or two before they would actually hit full blown. And I remember I, I, would, I, I could start getting this feeling and I knew that this was coming, I knew it was coming, and I also got to the point to where I could be with a group of people and I could have a full-blown panic attack and they would have no idea anything was going on inside of me, right? I, on the outside, I looked absolutely normal and could function perfectly well. Inside, I was an absolute mess, right? Well, after, after a year or, or so, these became less and less frequent and... Uh, and eventually they went away. Eventually I stopped having them. I don't know what started them. I don't know why they went away, but they just kind of went away. And then in 1996, something different happened. 
I had, uh, uh, oh, that's right. One of the things that this did to me, one of the big impacts it had on my life was it changed my self-perception, right? Because up until that time, I'd always thought of myself as a pretty, pretty strong emotional person. Um, things didn't really bother me. I kind of took things as they came. Uh, I kept a pretty even keel. Everything seemed to be fine. After this happened to me, that self-perception completely changed. And I realized that I could no longer just rely on my own strength. But I had to rely on the love and the strength of God to get me through. Right? So this was an important change that happened. And then in 1981, after, after the general panic attacks had gone away, my change in perception was still there. I was asked to uh, go to Estonia. Um, this was in 1996. And if you know anything about the history of this, of this part of the world, Estonia was one of the first countries to really declare its independence from the Soviet Union. It had been a part of the Soviet Union. And so they, they declared independence in 1991. Well, one of the problems with Estonia and a lot of these countries, because of the policy of Russification during the Soviet period, Russians were encouraged to migrate into these different countries that had been taken over and become part of the Soviet empire. And, I, uh, and, and so when Estonia declared its independence, people, uh, the, the, there was this real tension that was going on between this now large Russian minority population, which was, uh, it had come in during the, the Soviet period, and now, and the Estonians. So about a third of the population at that time was Russian in Estonia. And so this conference was dealing with those issues. It was meant to like be a start to try to deal with these kinds of uh, issues in Estonia. Because as you know, as we've seen in, in, in recent history, what, what, what Russia was threatening to do was to invade Estonia, right, to defend their Russian minority, just like what they did in Georgia a number of years ago, and just like what they did when they annexed the Crimea from the Ukraine. This is what they were threatening to do in Estonia. So it was a very tense time. And so I was asked by the United States Information Agency to uh, go and to participate in this conference. And so I was given a presentation. Uh, these were political leaders. Uh, they were uh, you know, Russians and Estonians. There were scholars. There were representatives of these different minority groups. And I was giving a presentation on sort of ethnic and racial issues in the United States. And in the middle of my presentation, all of a sudden this panic hit. I hadn't experienced it in years. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of this presentation, this panic hit. So I, I go on with the presentation. I don't know how. I don't actually remember much after that point, right? But I went through the presentation. But in my mind, I am just struggling. I am really struggling because everything within my being is saying, get the heck out of here, right? Get out. And anyway, I, I was able to finish my presentation. Um, I got hearty congratulations from the leader of the, of the conference afterwards as well as some others. But I knew in my heart that the only way I got through that presentation was by the grace of God. It was just the grace of God that got me through that, right? 
And so I'm getting these congratulations about how well this went. And I wanted to tell him, man, if you only knew, if you only knew what I was going through when I was given that presentation, you'd, you'd throw me up on your shoulders and carry me out, you know, as a great victor kind of thing. I mean, it, it took the grace of God to get through that. So one of the things that has happened since that is that I now have what I call uh, event-specific anxiety. So that sort of general, I don't know what psychologists would, float, would call it, free-floating anxiety was kind of gone. Now anxiety came with specific events, and those mainly had to do with public speaking and with flying. And I know that you'd say, well, if you talk to most people, that, those are pretty high up on the list, right, of, of anxiety-creating events, public speaking and flying. But if you have anxiety disorder like I do, man, it is off the charts, right? It is completely off the charts. And so um, I've been having this for the last 22 years. I have to, I have to deal with these kinds of issues of... Uh, when, I'm, when I'm doing specific events. So if you're, if you're connecting the dots, you can sort of get a guess of how I feel right now, right? Because <laughs> this, to me, is uh, public speaking. Like Paul, I have asked God on many occasions to take this away from me. I, I just, I, 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 but I've asked why. Right? Why? Not so much why did God cause this to happen, but why God put me in a profession where I have to do public speaking. I ha- and, I, and it's different places around the country and different places around the world, which means, of course, I have to fly. Right? The two big event, uh, events that spark my anxiety. I have to do this. It's part of my job. I, I guess I could quit and do something else, but this is what I've had to do. And so I've asked God, why? Why won't you take this away? Why won't you relieve me of this thorn? Right? And I think we learn something about this when we think about Paul's experience. You know, when you look at why Paul talks about why God put this thorn in his flesh, he said, it was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited and to see God's power made perfect in weakness. Right? We, have to be, we have to be careful because conceit is something that's around every corner. Right? Um, we, can start, we can start believing our own press. We can start believing when people say, wow, what a terrific job you did, or you're a great leader, or... You're, you know, we can start, start believing that. Like, yeah, I guess maybe I am. You know, in the last few months, we've seen some spectacular falls of key Christian leaders in really big churches. And this is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. But as I've read their stories, as I've read about what has happened, I can't help but think some of that came from conceit, right? Conceit coming into those lives them believing that, in fact, they are as good as people were saying they are. And uh, so in my case, see if I, I don't know that they, they seem clicking. So how this has affected me 
in my, in my own profession and in my own life is professionally it means that if anything ever good comes out of anything that I do, and especially if it's, if it's giving a presentation or things like that at a conference or whatever it might be, that when that is over, I can honestly say, thank God. Thank God for that. Right? If, someone, if people are coming up going, wow, that was really helpful, that was great, I really got a lot out of it, that was, you know. My, my answer to that is thank God for that. Right? Because I, it was not done in my own strength. It was done in the strength of Christ. Um, but more importantly, I think, in my case, is it has given me sympathy for and, and empathy for people who suffer. And I have to admit that that was something lacking in my life. And now, now when I hear people's stories, it, I, can, I can empathize with that because I have my own thorn, right? And, I, and it helps me to understand that. So if my thorn means that I preach less and love better, I will take that any day. Because we're not all called to be preachers, but we're all called to love. Right? And that, that's a trade-off I will take. So, before I go on, please, I need to give a word of clarification. Anxiety disorder, depression, other forms of mental illness are just that. They are illnesses. And we should treat them as we treat any other illnesses. Right? We, our, our general society tends to have a stigma on this. The church tends to have a stigma on this. It's an illness. And people should seek help and be helped by that. By those professionals. Some of you know, some don't that I have, uh, I've had cancer and that I have cancer. You know, Maggie's laughing because I, it, people are probably surprised it took me this long in my presentation to talk about cancer. But anyway, <laughs> um, but what that's meant is I had thyroid cancer. I had my thyroid removed. I went through treatments and they now consider that cured. I have a form of leukemia. It's incurable, but it's been stable. So what do I do? Do I just sit back and say, well, I, just, I have cancer, what the heck? No, I seek out experts. I see so many ologists, Dr. Okuson always makes fun of me. He says, you see all the ologists that I can think of, right? I seek out professionals to help me in my health. They monitor my health. They treat my health when it needs to be treated and so on. And I've also sought out help for my anxiety disorder. I've got professional help to try to deal with that. I don't just sit back and say, thank God for this. I hate it. I honestly hate it. But it's changed me in ways that I think have made me more Christ-like. And I'm willing to accept that. But the thing that I am saying is uh, that God desires, not can, God desires to use us in our weakness. So we can't let weakness 
keep us from doing the things that God wants us to do because it's the work of God. And if he can use us as jars of clay, vessels of clay, to, to, to do his work, that's what he wants. So we can't allow that to keep us from doing what God wants us to do. But this could be difficult. It can be difficult for Christians to open up about illnesses, whether mental or physical or anything, because we have some weird, what I would call faulty theologies of illness that, are, um, that many Christians seem to believe in today. So this one, the, the first one is this idea that kind of, it's the idea that if you are experiencing illness, then there must be sin in your life, right? So this John 9, when, when Jesus and the disciples come across this blind man from birth, and, they, and the disciples go right to this theology, and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, right? There, there's the theology. Who sinned? This man's blind. There must be sin. And Jesus' response, it's a beautiful response. He says, neither this man's parents nor he sinned. But this is so that God's glory, God's greatness can be revealed in this man's life. Right? So that's one of those kind of weird uh, theologies we have. A second one is kind of similar to it, and it's the idea that if we are ill or if we suffer from illness, then it has to do with the fact that we don't have enough faith. That God always wants to heal, and so if we're not healed, then it's because we don't have enough faith. And this is so weird to me because what about Paul? Right? One of our favorite uh, home movies is What About Bob? But this is What About Paul? Right? In the very passage that we read today, Paul is saying he begged God, he beseeched God to bring about healing, to remove this thorn, and God basically said no. Right? This is a guy who spoke to Jesus, to the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. This is a guy who God chose to be the apostle to the Gentiles. This is a guy that's got faith and God says, no, no, because I have, there are other, there are reasons I say no, right? And that's when Paul goes on to say that he will boast in his weaknesses. So the problem with this is that we as Christians, I think as Christians in general, especially those of us suffering, we are susceptible to those things. If someone says there's sin in your life, my response is, I know, <laughs> Right? If someone says you don't have enough faith, I say, I know, right? They're tapping into stuff that we already believe. So let me give a quick, I got about five minutes. Let me give a quick example of this. From this, I got this beautiful picture of Barbados. So when I was a young man with the same mission organization, I was suffering for Jesus in Barbados for about a month. And uh, <laughs> I went to this Pentecostal church, really big Pentecostal church. It had, I don't know, there Probably there were over a thousand people there that day. And one of the pastors got up to lead in a song. And as he got up to lead, this guy stands up in the church and just starts prophesying. And he says, you know, I, I, 
I've not been around, around a lot of people prophesying, but it was kind of, you know, starts off sort of general. You are my people, thus saith the Lord, you are my people, and I love you, and you know, kind of nice stuff. And then it starts narrowing down. But some of you have, uh, you know, have disobeyed me, and uh, you know, and one in particular has done this, and I am sitting in this group of a thousand people and I'm a visitor, and I am praying, oh God, don't let him say my name, right? <laughs> that's, that's what I'm thinking. So I tell, I tell Christians that story, and they'll say, why, what did you do? And I say, nothing, nothing, because I know myself, right? I know that I could love people more. I could love God more. I could do more things to further the kingdom. And so when, when Christians come to other Christians who are suffering and they use these uh, sort of misguided theologies, I, they kind of remind me of Job's friends, right? They come, they believe they know the will of God, they believe they know what God wants, and they say that to you, and they can be very, very well-meaning to be and think that they're being helpful but the problem is they can be so hurtful, right? Wow, I got an amen, thank you. I was, didn't know if that would happen, but I appreciated that. And what this can lead to then is it can lead to Christians being unwilling to be open about their weaknesses, to be open about issues that they're dealing with and the problems that they're having. So let me close. No applause? Okay, good. That's, that's another good sign. We're never told what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. And I think that this was very intentional. I think this was very intentional on God's part. Because I think that we probably all have our thorns, right? They might be thorns in the flesh. They might be thorns in the mind. They might be thorns in the heart, right? But we are all in need of the grace of God in our lives. We are all in need of the power of Christ in our lives. Right? So I believe that this is very intentional. God wants us to rely on him, that we draw our strength from him. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us step out with those in our society who argue that the worst thing we can do is admit weakness. For we, the people of God, know that it is through weakness that the power of God is made perfect. Let me close with the concluding verse that we read today from Paul. Let me conclude, uh, he says, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen.